0: Well, they got quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> really well, we welcome you to Ruston, Louisiana. All of you have traveled to be with us. It's more y'all than there are us. Y'all can take the place over if you wanted to. <laughs> but it is so good to have all of you here. We have waited with great anticipation and prayerful attitude that the Lord would be pleased to bless us. So many of you have traveled so far to be with us this weekend. And uh, we appreciate uh, you coming and being with us, all of you. I'm not going to try to name every name because I'm telling you, when you get 65 things don't get remembered, I'll get it right eventually. But uh, just a couple of reminders before we begin uh, tonight. Uh, I have talked with the people next door, uh, and if you notice, there's just not a whole lot of parking around here. And I talked to people at Louisiana Insurance next door and got their permission. So tomorrow morning... Uh, In particular, if you're physically able and you can make a walk from across that side of the street over to here, park in the two parking lots over here because we'll have a trailer for the fish fry be pulled out here tomorrow. It's going to take up quite a bit of room, so uh, that'll be available for you. Uh, Let's see, what else? That's all I can think of. Welcome. Welcome. I, I, I thank you for coming. And Pardon? Pizza. Oh, yeah, afterward. I need to know right now where I can make sure and call them. We, we, we've ordered pizza. I ordered 10 pizzas for after service, and I'm going to go pick them up at eight eight 845. Maybe you don't want to eat, maybe you do, but we're going to have pizzas back in the back. And a lady told me, she said, how many do you think you're going to have? And I kind of estimated, and I didn't know. How many are planning on hanging around for a little while and eating some pizza? Because I've got ten. You might want to ask who's not going to hang. Around. Yeah, let's do it that way. Who's not staying? No, we don't want to single you out. I mean, <laughs> okay. So one, two, three. Somebody count up how many not hands are not not up. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Zoe, you got your hand up? Oh, okay. So there's eight. How many? Somebody count up how many's here. I I can't I can't count that high. And remember it all. So I think ten p. Y'all just can't overeat. That's just we just. <laughs> I'll go get ten, and you eat what we got. And if we have any left over, when the young people have their meeting tomorrow afternoon at six o'clock, you can eat what's left over. If there's not, too bad. Okay. Okay, Kenny, come lead us. If everybody got a bulletin, I don't think I've got one. <laughs> Take your bulletin and turn to the call to worship. I will remind you up front hold on to this bulletin because it has the call to worship for both services in the morning. Uh, I printed 55, so I got a pretty good idea of how many is here by the number of bulletins that are uh, gone. But hold on to this. If you
1: don't have a bulletin, this song is in this red folder too.
0: So you can get it. Let's stand together.
1: my work's not mine, O oh, Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done, they bid my fear depart. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin not Lord, shall I flee? Thy pain's not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree. Have paid the law's price and purchased peace for me. To whom save thee? Who canst alone for sin atone? Lord, shall I flee? My cross, not mine, O oh, Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven could bear, but God, to whom saved thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. My death, not mine, O Christ, has paid the ransom due. Ten thousand deaths like mine would have been all too few. To whom save thee? Who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee? Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avail save that which is of thee. To whom save thee who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall
2: I flee.
0: It says the USB mic is working.
3: It
0: should be working. I don't know why we lost audio on the other one. Uh, Michael, but... uh, we just won't be able to use that. If you would take your Bible with me and turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. It wouldn't be us if it wasn't a glitch with, with something on this dadgum computer. I'm about to pick this thing up and throw a hissy fits about what I'm ready to do. <laughs> this has drove me crazy for the last six weeks of my life. Something else to drive my blood pressure up, Pam. So. Psalm 32. Let's read this before we go to the Lord in prayer. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go, and I will guide thee with mine eye. But you be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. May the Lord bless, read him his word, and bless us as we seek to worship him tonight through the preaching of his gospel. Let us go to the Lord. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God of heaven and earth, we humbly and gratefully bow in thy presence, thanking thee and praising thee for your mercy and your grace to sinners like unto ourselves. To thank, Lord God, that uh, God who is in need of absolutely nothing, sovereign and omnipotent, almighty, great 3-1 God, that you would determine within yourself to have mercy and grace on sinners, And that you, according to your divine will and purpose, would send forth your Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem us out from underneath the guilt, penalty, and condemnation of your law and justice. And then, Lord God, to graciously send your Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your word, call out your people to true faith and true repentance, bringing us to rest in Christ is the Lord our righteousness. We pray, Lord, that as we gather over these next three days, that the messages that are preached, that the songs that are sung, that the scriptures that are read, and that the prayers that are prayed would all be to direct our hearts and our minds away from the things of time and sense, and direct them squarely to him who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, we count it a blessing to have uh, Brother Bill and Gary and Debbie here with us, to uh, Bill and Gary to preach. We thank you and we praise you for all these dear brothers and sisters that have come from from so far to be with us this weekend. Lord, it's it's such a privilege to have dear brethren, people that love and believe your gospel, to come and be with us in this special time of worship. We pray that you would bless our time as we seek to worship you. May we worship you in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in human flesh. And we pray, Lord God, that you would uh, bless us uh, through both these services, that you'd be with us in our time of fellowship afterward, that you would be with all the rest of the services through the remainder of this weekend, if we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake alone, amen. Is it working, man? You sure? Okay. Okay. Well, i it, it's one of those things, you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and it gets here. And I know when we have the first two services tonight, we're only four services from being over, and it'll be over. It happened the same way when we were down, uh, when Gary and I were down in Albany back in October. We got there, the first two messages went through, and it seemed like we were in the car trying to drive across Alabama to get back to Louisiana. But uh, I am so thankful uh, for another opportunity. This will be... With the exception of the COVID year, Bill Parker has been up here with me uh, and us as a church every year since 1989. So to do the math on that's 34 years. I was telling Bill today, first time I Bill met met Bill and Mike Luger was with him. Uh, Bill was uh, Bill was see, 35, and I was 30. And now I'm 65, and Bill's on the brink of 70, uh, but uh, it doesn't seem like that long. But uh, and then I had the privilege back. I met Gary years ago. I mean, I actually mean he was talking about it. I I met him for the first time, didn't really get to know him back in 1989, but uh, I went up and preached in Almont in August of 2011, and Gary was the second speaker there, and I got to meet Gary. And we spent time together, and then we both went to uh, Ashland together and preached in Ashland together and got to know each other even better. And I'm so thankful that the Lord in his good providence brought uh, me and Gary to be uh, dear brothers in Christ, and he's such a faithful gospel preacher. And so we're, we're not going to sing any more songs. We're just going to turn it over to Gary. Gary, you come preach to us when we get done. When Gary's done, we'll go to the back. There's coffee, right? There's nothing. There's bottles of water if you want a bottle of water. <laughs> if you want a bottle of water, we can go to the back and have a bottle of water. And then we'll take just a few minutes break if you need to go to the bathroom or anything, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back out and uh, be able to preach to us in the second hour. So, Gary, you come preach to us.
3: I'm very thankful tonight and very honored to be in this pulpit, and especially to be among these young preachers. <laughs> uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter <clears throat> 2, 1 <First> Corinthians <clears throat> 2. While you're turning there, I'll relate to you something that happened to one of the men in our congregation this week. He's a he's a barber. Some of you know him. But he had a fundamentalist Baptist preacher in his chair. And that preacher it seemed like, was evading all of his attempts to communicate from the scriptures with this man. And the preacher finally told him, he said, these preachers need to quit talking so much about all this grace and tell people to get to work for Jesus get to work for Jesus. And so he asked him, he said, well, well, what did Paul preach? Did he preach the gospel and these things? And he said, he said, Paul taught us how to win souls. And that was his final word. So my question tonight is, How did the apostle preach? How did the apostle Paul preach? What what did he preach? Well, in verses 1 through 6, it says, and this is Paul the apostle, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, Declaring unto you the testimony of God. He preached the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech... And my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not The wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. He says, We speak the wisdom of God. And he is in these verses contrasting the wisdom of man to the wisdom of God. And he tells us that it is a mystery, and a mystery in Scripture is that which is hidden and must be revealed. A mystery must be revealed. And he says that it is that which God ordained before the world. This is a mystery that God ordained before the world. And he says also that it is a wisdom that he ordained before the foundation of the world unto our glory. That is the people of God. In other words, it is something that God purposed. It's something that God gave. It's something that God established in a covenant. And he did so For that people that he chose to be his people. And so he's talking about a wisdom that is not known naturally. Not by the most educated, not by the least educated, or any between. It's never known. No man by searching can find out God. This is a mystery that is something that has to be revealed. So he says to us in verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God. We speak, Paul and all who preach the gospel, they speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. And whether great or small, none can know this mystery, this gospel mystery, unless God reveal it to them. It doesn't matter who they are. As a matter of fact, in the next verses, he says, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known, had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, he says, as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, The things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. And the reason is because men born in this world, since the fall, since our fall in Adam, and that's all of us, they are totally blind to and ignorant of and resistant to this knowledge that displays the wisdom of God. All they want to hear about is the wisdom of man, that which is, is the device and purpose of man. And although this mystery can be spoken truthfully, although it can be declared Contrary to the thinking of some, although it can be declared clearly, although it can be done accurately, men cannot see it, they cannot understand it, and they certainly cannot see the glory of it. That's what the prophet said. Something about seeing the king in his glory. And that glory, as Paul tells us here, is simply the glory of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here is this man who, by the Spirit of God, says he's speaking this divine wisdom. He's declaring this revelation of God. And he's doing it. And this mystery is summed up in this, in verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That means that it is not just simply about a person. It's invo- it involves that work that identifies this person. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And though it be accurately proclaimed, defined, such as the true gospel preacher does, it cannot be known or understood or seen any way spiritually except there be a revelation from God, a work of God's Spirit, And note what it says here in verse 10. Although this is man's condition, universal. Although this is what's gone on from the, the beginning of time to this day. Although no man can understand or see or believe what is revealed in this mystery. He says in verse 10 of these believers at Corinth, but God. Hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The deep things of God are simply the great things of Christ and Him crucified. And a revelation by God's Spirit is absolutely necessary because that gospel, that declaration of the wisdom of God falls on deaf ears unless the Spirit of God gives life, gives new birth. That's what Christ said to Nicodemus. Except you experience what he calls the new birth or being born again or as it actually is being born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God except God by his spirit, his sovereign spirit, like the wind that blows where it listeth, and we can't tell where it comes from, and we certainly cannot control it or tell where it's going, unless God the Spirit reveal this message to us, give us an understanding, as John said, we'll not know the wisdom of God. We'll rest in the wisdom of men. We'll rest in our own natural thinking. And a revelation by the Spirit of God is absolutely necessary. Look at what he says in verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you feel in your heart. I don't know what you know. There's no way I can. Only you in your spirit know these things. And he said, Even so, or in like manner, even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. We're dependent upon faithful gospel preaching. We're dependent upon a right dividing of the Word of God. But even that is dependent, as far as us understanding it, We're dependent upon the revealing work of the Spirit of God. I think about it sometimes when we see things naturally that we don't know anything about, and we'll, we'll gain some understanding, and that's what it amounts to. And we'll say then when somebody starts talking about it, I see. That means I understand. I have some understanding about it. And that's the way that it is with the gospel. Unless the Spirit of God reveal it to us, we're dead in trespasses and sin. We're preaching to men and women who are in this state before God naturally, but God is able to cause them to see and to hear and to understand the truth. It's just like when Ezekiel was commanded to preach. Preach to these dead, dry bones in the valley. And the question that God asked him is this, can these bones live? And I've always thought there that Ezekiel's reply meant something like this. He said, Lord, thou knowest. In other words, you know if they can live, but if it's dependent upon me, I can't make them live. And so the next thing he says to him is, is prophesy to him or preach to him. What is the use of preaching the wisdom of God to dead, uncomprehending sinners lost in their darkness and lost in their, in their spiritual condition? What, what is the use of, of making an effort to preaching the gospel to dead people? It's not in your power. It's not in my power. We can't make you understand or do anything to cause you to, to know what's being said in the gospel. But God can. That's my hope. That's my, that's the, some people say, well, if I believe what you believe, I would never preach. If I didn't believe what I believe, I wouldn't preach either. Because I can't give life to the dead. I can't give spiritual understanding to you. I can't can't overcome your will. I I can't open up your heart or your head or anything. But God can. And his pledge to his people is that he'll do just that. And that he'll do it to his elect in every age. Every single age. Turn over to John chapter 6 and hear what the Lord says that is a a wonder and a joy to my soul. I know it in my own case. In John chapter 6 and verse 45, he quotes The prophets, there's nothing new. This is what the prophets said. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all. Who is that all? All of God's elect. They shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. That's about as plain and clear as it can be. They say, why do you preach if you state that men are in such a condition as this? Which they are. Because every one of God's sheep will be taught of God. He says that. He'll teach them. Every one of them will hear. And as a result of this teaching and this causing them to hear, they will all come to Christ. Every single one of them. All right? Look over in Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter fifty four. <clears throat> Look at verse eleven, Isaiah chapter fifty four. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, tempest, and not comforted. Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundation with sapphires. And will, I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of present stone, and all thy children, I believe he's talking here about the church, He says, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Great shall be the peace of thy children. Why? Because the result of God teaching them, revealing the truth to them, they rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. <clears throat> In verse 34. And they shall teach no more everyone his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall all know me. Everyone shall know him. They'll know him by this revelation. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the best news in every one of God's sheep. They're going to have this revealed to them. They're going to have revealed to them not what they are to do, but they're going to have revealed to them what Christ has done, what God in his Son has done for them. Every single one of them. He goes on in Hebrews 8. If you turn there, Hebrews 8. And verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. That's the message all the way through this Bible. This is the covenant promise of God. This is what God said he was going was to do. And that is reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and if you look back at our text, Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We don't have to wonder whether or not a man is preaching the gospel or not. They checked Paul out. The Bereans checked Paul out. How did they do that? They looked and studied the word of God to see if the things he said were true. But it can really be summed up In this, it says in verse 12, Now we, that is these Corinthian believers, Paul says with not only them but with every believer in every age. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God that we might know what? How to serve him, what to do for him, how to live, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. In other words, the wisdom of God, the gospel of God, makes known to his people the things that are freely given to them by God. and if we are hearing something else, we are not here in the gospel. Today is simply a regime of nothing but dos and don'ts and rules and abstaining and working just like this man. Get to work for Jesus. The gospel's not about our getting to work for Jesus. The gospel about his work for us. It's a declaration of what he has already done. What he has freely given to us. Given to us as a gift. That's all spiritual (laughs) blessing. Sometimes I think about it to all these worldly wise preachers and people, to preach the gospel of grace to them is simply like an elementary thing. Surely we believe it. salvation by grace. And, but now tell us some more important things. My friend, if you ever find out what kind of sinner you are, and the only way you it will is to believe God. You can't believe yourself. You can't believe these lying preachers. You can't believe mama. You can't believe daddy, your neighbor, your friend. You'll only know what you are as a sinner in God's sight if he enables you to believe what he says you are. And if he does that, it's that he might reveal to you the things that is, are freely given you. But they're not given to you just in abandon. He not He's not giving anybody anything at the cost of his character. These men that preach a grace where It's uh, uh, just God sweeping your sins under the carpet, so to speak. That's not the gospel. The gospel has to do with how a just God can deal with your sins in grace and mercy and still remain faithful to himself, his character. That's why the apostle says to us that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings that God gave us in Christ when he chose us in Christ before the world began. The things that Christ died for our sins that we might have. The things that he redeemed us for that we would surely possess. When we talk about redemption, sometimes we say, well, God uh, redeemed us. He, He bought all these things for us. When actually the Bible says that he redeemed us, that he might freely give us these things. The price of that redemption is his blood, his death. And he shed his blood so that he might justly and to the honor of his own character and to the complete dealing with the condition of our souls show himself righteous in the doing. That's why it says that he's shown us and revealed to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit reveals. Christ said he'll take, when he's come, he'll take the things of mine. He'll take the things about Christ, not about how to raise your hand or how to sing or how to do this or that or other in emotion, but he'll take the things of Christ and do what? Show them to you. Give you life to see them, to understand them, to know them. And this knowledge he gives that reveals to us the things that are freely given to us, not our doing, not our, our human works, not our free will, not our Christian living, not our st- stewardship, or a million more things that men preach. But all about a gift. It's all bound up in his unspeakable gift. And in Scripture, it comes forth in three particular gifts in Christ. The gift of righteousness, the gift of faith, and the gift of repentance. He must give us it all. Reveal to us the things that are freely given us. We preach Christ the unspeakable gift. Everything in him given And this is the wisdom of God. The cross, the cross death of Christ is the wisdom of God because it does enable God to be just and the justifier of all his believing people. You say, well, God's great, he created all these things in our universe. Or he makes the sun come up every morning and the moon come. God's so great. That's nothing compared to this. How a just God can show mercy on such rebels and sinners as we are. How he can deliver us and still honor himself. Maintain his truth. How he can do that. That's the wisdom of God. And it's in Christ, and it's been a long time in Christ, who said way back in the book of Proverbs, Our wisdom, the wisdom of God. So when we stand to preach, brother, we preach the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men, not the not what we learned in a seminary, not what we, we gain by reading a lot of books and commentaries and stuff like this. We never get beyond Christ and him crucified because this is the wisdom of God. We, in my mind, we're very uh, redundant sometimes in what we say when we say uh, the blood and righteousness of Christ. The blood, the cross death of Christ is the righteousness of God. His just dealing with his people in the matter of their sins and saving them for his glory. By imputing and laying our sins on Christ. Accounting the Lord Jesus Christ in the matter of our sin, reckoning upon us his righteousness. You see, I don't know of anything that shows the wisdom of God any more than imputation. God imputing the sins of his people to Christ. Who'd have ever thought? Because every time we are turned loose, it's like we were talking today. I, he mentioned something about sewing. The fact that they sewed back up the bale of the temple when it was rent in twain, they sewed it back up. That's just like a sinner. They want to sew a, a new piece of cloth onto a old, dirty, rotten piece of cloth. Adam and Eve in the garden, what they do? Sewed a fig leaf apron. This is the wisdom of God. This is where we rest. This is where we find all of salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who preach the gospel of the cross preach all the wisdom of God. They speak that divine mystery. They know they can't reveal it to anybody. They're like old Ezekiel. Lord, thou knowest. But in obedience to his command, we preach the truth. Because it doesn't depend on us to raise anybody from the dead or to give them the ear. But he's able to. And he will. And he uses this gospel to give the knowledge to his people. Sometimes go back through this chapter and see how many times it talks about knowing. These This day and time, they, they just make a mockery of knowledge. I'm telling you, if God doesn't reveal something to you, and give you some knowledge, you're going to Die and go to hell. Precious knowledge, understanding, good news that we can confident and rest in the wisdom of God. Paul says in and 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, If you'll look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 17. Paul says, Christ sent me not to baptize. He didn't even send me to win anything. But to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Not to hide the gospel in a, in a bunch of uh, theological talk or, uh, or great flowery oratory or plain truth. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Who he is and what he actually accomplished on that cross for his people. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of, it, of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, <laughs> it's the power of God. Jews require a sign. Gentiles require uh, wisdom, the wisdom of this world. But unto them that are called, which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He's the wisdom of God. And so when God in mercy deals with his people in Christ, And he reveals this mystery, this this wisdom to them. That's the first time that they're ever wise. I don't care how many verses they can quote. I don't care how many theologians they can quote. Until they in their heart have revealed to them this wisdom. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus who is made unto us wisdom. Isn't it amazing that's the first word he uses there. Oh, he's made unto us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's made unto us first wisdom, how he can be, how he can answer Job's question. How can a man be just with God? That's the wisdom of God.
0: It's not about
2: 80% of the rate of reaction already less consumption rates What did she get in trouble?
0: Everybody, will take a seat. We'll go ahead and we'll get started. <clears throat> now, just so you know, I've got to leave to at seven forty-five. I'm not, I'm walking. I'm not offended walking out on you. Well, you gonna do it at seven forty-five? Okay. Okay. Let's take our Bibles and open to Second Corinthians chapter five. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I just want to read the last four verses of this chapter. Five verses, starting in verse 17 before we go to the Lord in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ a new creature, old things are passed away, Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Kenny, would you lay us in a word?
1: These gentlemen, as they stand up to deliver this glorious gospel, Lord, that you give them the words to say, that you give us open ears, receptive hearts to hear, to understand these things. And we pray, Father, that everything that's done here during this conference, everything that's done here at Grace Church will be for your glory and for your glory alone, for it's in the precious name of Christ that we pray all these things. Amen.
0: Amen. Okay, just a point about that. Uh, I'm going to leave toward the end of the service, so again, I'm I'm not offended in leaving. I'm going to pick up the pizzas, okay? <laughs> I've got the church credit card, so I get that that occupation today. Uh so anybody that wants to stay when we get done, we'll have pizzas. Matt, when if I don't make it back, you need to come up here and turn this turn this off where it won't just run endlessly. Tomorrow morning we will have two services starting at ten o'clock in the morning. Uh we will have donuts and coffee in the back and then we will take a break between services, and then we'll have a second service at 11, and then we have a catered fish fry tomorrow right after services. Uh, you don't have to bring anything tomorrow. Then tomorrow afternoon at 6 o'clock, right, Lauren, wherever you yeah, at, 6 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, if you're 40 and under, so that leaves many of us out, if you're 40 and under, you're welcome to join the younger group back in the back for a time of fellowship tomorrow afternoon at 6 o'clock. And then Sunday morning, we'll have our regular service hours at 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. We will not have any Sunday Bible classes in the back uh, where the Sunday Bible teachers can be out here. Everybody's going to be out here in the auditorium for both services. Gary will preach to us in the 10 o'clock hour, and then Bill will finish the service, uh, the conference in the 11 o'clock hour. And then we'll have a covered dish uh, fellowship meal together at the conclusion of the service. So that's the schedule for the rest of the week. I am so grateful again. I, I, as as Bill and I we we get older uh, and time passes by, and it has passed by so quickly. Uh, Pam and I we have you know just like everybody else we had we had. Uh, VCR tapes and we got them put on the DVD tapes and I on DVD disc and I went back and I was looking at them and the first time that Bill came up with Mike Loser we, we we both looked like kids and we really were kids and I, I'm thankful first of all that I heard the gospel from Henry Mahan but I'm also thankful that Henry according to God's providence put me and Bill together back in 1989 he has been uh, my dearest brother and friend for the last 30-some-odd years of my life, we've been through so many battles together, and he's always had my back, and I hope and I pray that I've always had him and his. And I, I count it such a privilege to have both these men uh, here with us, and I'm grateful that Bill could come up again and preach to us. So, Bill, you come preach to us, and you close the service, and then Matt, you come and turn this thing off when we get done. Okay.
2: Well, I, I am so grateful to be here tonight and to see so many people that I, I know and uh, that I've seen from afar and I've met many of you face to face and there some of you tonight and it, it's an awesome privilege. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed that uh, the Lord would give me up uh, the pulpit for even a few moments uh, to preach to you and... Uh, uh, I will go ahead and tell you, I, If my voice sounds a little different. I'm on the tail end of a cold. Uh, Richard called me up last week, and he said he was getting a cold, and I woke up the next morning with a raspy throat. So we're kind of t- tied together there. But I'm not contagious, and uh, so I apologize for that, and I'll speak of it no more. It's uh, We're going to preach the Word of God. And so I'm looking forward to sitting down and, and having some fellowship uh uh, talk with with some of you uh, brethren and sisters in Christ that I love and cherish and uh, so Debbie and I both uh, we thank the church here Richard and Pam and, and the church members here for being so gracious to us over the years because it's been you can't even describe it so. well I'm going to do something uh, that may sound impossible <laughs> Because I'm going to take a few minutes just to talk about what happened at the cross. And to take that in a few minutes is a daunting task. Because it's such an awesome thing. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9 verse 24. But before I go to the text, I want you to turn with me to the book of John chapter 16. And then I want to read a little bit of John 16. Uh, beginning at verse 8, and then we'll go to the text in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. And uh, so what I'm really going to do is, and I'm just going to show you the tip of the iceberg tonight, because that's what it is. The, this, uh, The cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the crux of the purpose of God, redemptive history. Uh, it, it's It's so awesome. And what happened there at Calvary, in the process of time, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, uh, to redeem us who were under the law. And I want to do it in the context of what is spoken here by our Lord to his disciples in John 16 when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of conviction. And the spirit of conviction in the new birth. And he says in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, speaking to the disciples, it is expedient, it is necessary, needed for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, the going away there is speaking of his cross work that he would go, uh, go through in his suffering unto death, as the surety, the substitute, the redeemer of God's elect, given to him before the foundation of the world, and then he would be—he would die, be buried, be raised from the dead, and he would go unto the Father. And he says, in verse eight, "And when he is come—that's the Holy Spirit—as the Spirit of con- conviction, he will reprove or convince or convict." the world of sin, talking about the world of God's people all over, the God's elect out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. is not speaking of everyone without exception because everyone without exception is not convinced of these things. And he says, can convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, those three things are comprehensive, and they... Set forth things that man by nature does not understand. Man by nature does not understand the issue of sin. What sin really is in all of its facets. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and then righteousness. Man by nature doesn't understand the real concept of righteousness. Uh, Man by nature uh, measures righteousness on a sliding scale of human morality and sincerity. But righteousness can only be measured as it is revealed in the person and work of Christ. And then he says of judgment. What about judgment? The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. And listen to what he says in verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me. Sin can only be understood as it relates to Christ. In the glory of his person and the power of his finished work. Because Christ is the standard. And the same thing with righteousness. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. Now, how was he going to go to his father? As the one who finished the work. And then in verse 11, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Think Think of it this way. Satan oftentimes is called the accuser of the brethren. And I always think about that passage back in Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua, the high priest, standing before the, the judge, and Satan, his accuser. And he's wearing those filthy rags, which is the rags of our own sin. And the Lord, who is Christ, comes in, as you might say, the defense attorney, and says, take away those filthy rags and put a new garment on it. And that's a, that's a picture of how our sins are judged in Christ, and they're not they're not imputed to us. They're not imputed to us. We wear the robe of Christ' righteousness imputed to us. So Satan's accusations will not fall upon us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So, in that context, let's go over to Daniel chapter nine. And what I want you to see here this this uh, Daniel in this he's praying. Daniel the prophet, in captivity in Babylon, he's praying, and he's praying for the people of Judah. And in the midst of his prayer, God sent forth the man Gabriel to give Daniel a prophecy. And it's a prophecy of Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and his coming into the world to do his great work of redeeming his people by his obedience unto death, being cut off. That's what he he was cut off from the land of the living. And I like what you said. He He didn't redeem the gifts. He redeemed us. And we have the gifts because he redeemed us. And that's a good point to understand. Christ, our representative, our surety. You know what a surety does? He's the surety of the covenant. He's always been before the foundation of the world. Christ, our substitute. Being our surety, having our sins imputed to his account, he had to become man in that sense. He had to take upon himself a sinless humanity and walk this earth as our substitute, God manifest in the flesh, God with us. And then as our Redeemer, in order to redeem us, he had to die because the wages of sin is death. So he had to die the death that would satisfy the justice of God and then... He's our life giver. He's our sustainer. He's our intercessor. I mean, can we go on and on, couldn't we? He's our all and in all. And in this passage, and I'm just going to deal with verse 24. I know you might have a lot of questions about the rest of it. uh, And I'm not going to go into that tonight. We can talk about it if you want. uh, But it says in verse 24, he says, seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now if you read anything, any commentaries about this, uh, it usually, commentators and uh, uh, theologians usually agree that this is talking about 77s or 77s of years. It would equal out to around 490 years, all right, approximately. And what he's talking about is the time period between the Uh, Jews returning from captivity back into Jerusalem, from Babylon to Jerusalem, from that time period when the second temple was built up to the time of the Messiah. And it's pretty doggone accurate because it happened that way. So what you have here is a promise of the coming of Christ into the world. And he gives us six things here that's going to be accomplished by that promise. One who is promised, who would come in the fullness of the time. That's the time that God has appointed, made of a woman, made unto the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And he said in these six things, he gives the totality of what Christ accomplished on the cross to secure the salvation and the final glory of every sinner for whom he died on that cross. It wasn't a blanket pardon. It wasn't some kind of a universal offer. It was a redemption. It was the establishment and the security and the assurance of the salvation of his sheep, the elect of God. The Bible says that when Christ was on that cross and he was hanging there suffering, one of those seven sayings, remember, it is finished. Don't you love that? See, our salvation is based on a finished work, not a work to be done. Hebrews 10, 14, one of my favorite verses. For by one offering he hath perfected, completed forever them that are sanctified, those whom God set apart and as you read in John 6, gave to him all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he did that. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 says that the body of sin might be destroyed. Well, what is that body of sin? That's everything that sin is. Everything that sin is, you know, sin comes in, uh, is, is described in different ways in the Scripture. Sometimes it means falling short of the mark. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sometimes it's the word transgression, which is used here in the Hebrew, in Daniel 9. Sometimes it's iniquity. Sometimes it's a, it's a debt. Sin runs up a debt, God's law and justice. Well, everything that sin is, Christ took care of it on the cross. He didn't leave one inch of it for us to take care of. He did it all. And he starts off with some negative aspects here. Look at, look at the verse 24. He said he's coming, number one, to finish the transgression. Now that's Christ, I believe, taking care of sin in its origin. Many commentators say that that's talk, because that's singular, it's talking about Adam's transgression, and it could be. But sin in its origin. We were all brought into a state of sin and death and depravity by our fall in Adam. For by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And death passed upon all men for all sin, literally is what that means. This finishing of the transgression means he restrained it, he shut it up. And it does refer to that one sin that Adam committed that brought the whole human race into this state of death and depravity, total depravity, sin in its origin, sin in its beginning. Our fallen Adam is the root and cause of all sin. It's the cause of all of us being born the way we're born, spiritually dead, spiritually depraved. Well, Christ took care of that. He finished that. He made it sure that all of God's people would receive the gift of life, life from the dead. And that's why he said to his disciples, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come because the Holy Spirit is the great applicator of the benefits and blessings of God's grace in Christ to his people. And if Christ did not die on that cross, there'd be no life to give. There'd be no faith there be no repentance. So he come to finish the transgression. And you can think of all the glorious things that that involves. But like I said, I'm just going to show you the tip of the iceberg tonight. Here's the second thing. He said to make an end of sins. Now there the word sins is plural. To make an end of it means to close it up, to seal it. Sin and all of its consequences, not only sin in its origin. But sin and its consequences. The wages of sin is death. What is the result of sin? This passage in James chapter 1 and verse 15 speaks of lust having conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it's finished bringeth forth death. You see, Christ came to make an end of sin, so that sin could not make an end of us. You see that? And we're all sinners. We deserve nothing but death and hell. We've earned nothing but death and hell. But thank God we have a mediator. Thank God we have a redeemer. I know my redeemer liveth. Christ took away our sins, the scripture says. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, John wrote, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that Christ was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Now, that's, that's that verse in 1 John 3 and verse 5, a lot of people say, well, that means in Christ himself there is no sin. Well, that's true. In Christ there is no sin. He's the impeccable Christ. But I believe what that verse is teaching us is that as we stand in Christ, united to him as our surety, our representative, our son, God sees no sin. He doesn't hold sin against us. Think about that. He doesn't charge you with sin if you're in Christ. He cannot. Again, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who can condemn us? It's Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again. God says, I'll I'll remember your sins no more. What does that mean? That means he won't bring them up again. He won't keep a record of them. You're not going to meet him at judgment. He's he's not going to show a a slideshow of your sins, he's not going to do that. We stand before God washed in the blood of Christ. What does that mean? That means washed clean, just as satisfied. He made an end of it. We stand before God clothed in his righteousness. And then here's the third thing he says, to make reconciliation for iniquity. That's sin and its separation. You know what what separates a sinner from God? Sin does. Brother Richard read that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. That's talking about reconciliation, isn't it? How God is reconciled to sinners, peace between God and sinners, and how sinners are reconciled to God on one ground, the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You take that away, and you've got no reconciliation. You take that away, and you spit in the wisdom of God. My friend, there's no other way. How are we justified? We're justified by God's grace in the person and work of Christ. And so as he goes on, he, he makes reconciliation by the blood of the cross, save us from sin, brought us to this aspect of it. Look at the, and, and look at this when he says uh, the next one, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The Bible says that Christ, that, that his work, and I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, it became him. It was becoming to him. It was befitting him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, that's not talking about how Christ had to be made perfect within himself by his suffering. That's talking about how he, he he's made perfect in the sense that he finished his work. He completed it. He fulfilled it. And so when he says, bring in everlasting righteousness, that's the answer. That's, that's the legal aspect of the ground of our salvation, upon which God has justified all of his people, past, present, and future. Righteousness established. Now let me tell you something. This issue of righteousness is so important. I've been ridiculed because I preach it so much. And I don't care. I don't care. Because I know, I know what the Bible says. Think about this. You know, when Christ began his public ministry, you know when it began? At his baptism. And when John the Baptist came to him, he said, Well, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Remember what Christ said to him? He said, Suffer it to be so, for it behooveth us to fulfill all righteousness. You know what he was saying there? He's saying, This is why I came into the world, to fulfill all righteousness. That's how he described his mission and his message. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith, knowledge revealed, to faith, knowledge received. For the just, the justified, shall live by faith. What is it to be justified? It's to be forgiven on a just ground. And what is the just ground? The blood of Christ. It's to be declared righteous on a just ground. And what is the just ground? His righteousness, the merits of his obedience unto death, imputed to us. And therefore, those who are justified live by faith, meaning they live by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. How God can be both a just God and a Savior. Do you know the only religion, if you want to call it that, The only belief system, you might say, that ask and answer that question is the gospel that we believe. That question is not even considered in man's religion. One of the members of our church who's passed away, he had a daughter who married a man who was an evangelist, and she became an evangelist too, but they weren't preaching the evangel. They were preaching a false gospel. And he tried and tried to witness the gospel to his daughter. And one day he was talking to her, and he asked her, he said, do you understand that you need to know how God can be both a just God and a Savior, just and justifier? And she looked at him, and she said, well, why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. That's the glory of God. That's the wisdom of God. Right there. You won't find that question even posed, let alone answered, in any of man's false religions. But oh, we have the answer here, revealed by God in the person and work of Christ. How can God look at a sinner like me, who deserves nothing but death and hell, and be both a righteous judge, be true to himself, and still be a heavenly Loving, gracious Father. Well, as Gary said, you've got to be taught of God to know that, don't you? You've got to learn of the Father, John 6, 45. And how do you learn of him? Through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, look here. That's, now, that's the fulfillment of the law of God. Bring in everlasting righteousness. That's the fulfillment of the law of God the justice of God. And then look at the next one. He says, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy. That's the fulfillment of the word of God. Everything in that Old Testament finds its culmination in the person and work of Christ. All Scripture the prophecies, all the types, all the pictures, the everlasting covenant of grace made before time based upon the work in the, of the surety. And when Christ came, what did he do? He abolished the old covenant and established the new covenant in time. He fulfilled everything that was prophesied, typified, and pictured in the word of God. Remember, he told the Pharisees, he said, you do search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, although they are they which testify of me. If you read Scripture, memorize Scripture, study Scripture, but if you don't see Christ in the glory of his person and the power of his finished work, you've missed it. And isn't that sad? Here the Pharisees were telling him, well, We have Moses. Christ said, Moses will judge you. Talking about the law. My friend, if we don't have Christ, can you you understand? Coming before God at judgment without Christ. What an awful horror it is. We know the terror of the Lord. That's what Paul meant by that. What a terror it is. And that's why he said the Spirit will convict us of judgment because the prince of this world is cast out. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth righteousness without works. He sealed it up, the vision and the prophecy. All that was spoken to God's people was fulfilled in Christ. And then lastly, he says, to anoint the most holy. Well, he himself was anointed as the holiest, the Lamb of God, the one mediator between God and men, the Father said it, "This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, to hear ye him." And then upon his death, he entered into the holiness, holiest of all, signified by the tearing of the veil from top to bottom, God signifying there that the way into God's holy presence was this glorious person who finished this glorious work. And he ascended unto the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for his people. Hebrews 1.3 says, Christ is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And always remember, that he had the names of his people on his heart and on his shoulder. Names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, written there before the world began. Paul wrote in Romans eight ten, If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ right now is ruling and reigning to bring all of his sheep into the fold. And he gives us free, unlimited access into the holy presence of Almighty God. Nothing hinders us because he's removed everything. Think about that. We can enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Having his righteousness. That's your right. His blood is his righteousness. Having his righteousness. Pleading the... begging for mercy that comes only to us in him. And I hope that you can see tonight the tip of the iceberg because there's a whole lot more that will be said about all of that, isn't there? Okay.
3: Once again, I want to encourage everyone to stay. Richard is gone to get the pizza, and he should return momentarily. So, uh, I'd like for you all to stay and uh, enjoy the fellowship with us there. 10 o'clock in the morning, we will be back here for our first service and uh, look forward to seeing everyone then. All board, would you dismiss us with a word of prayer and uh, ask the Lord to bless the food we're about to receive?